Uh, hi, welcome to Fast Forward by HTEC. I'm Yovana and I'm on a mission to interview exceptional entrepreneurs, startup founders, investors, and business leaders on the topic of business scaling, innovation, and startup culture. Today, I have the pleasure to talk with Michael C. Bush, the CEO of Great Place to Work. Michael is an amazing leader, and as the CEO of Great Place to Work, he is very well positioned to share with us his unique perspective on corporate culture and challenges that companies face when scaling their teams. Hello, Michael. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, let's talk about how to create a great company culture and be a great leader in times of disruption. Yovana, honored to be here today. <laughs> Thank you for coming to Oakland, California. <laughs> I'm, the honor is all mine. So um, I've listened to your lectures and keynotes, and I'm very excited for the opportunity to talk to you. Uh, about the issues and opportunities uh, that management teams face when scaling, uh, scaling their companies, their teams. Uh, and you've been in and out of these uh, challenges for many times. So uh, what we'd like to touch base on uh, and what intrigues us the most and hopefully our, our audiences too is how to create a resilient culture uh, that will preserve its core values uh, while growing. And what are the changes that we might not be able to avoid, but maybe we can control uh, in a certain way? And also, how will these changes uh, affect our top line, our bottom line, and our overall fi financial performance? Uh, but before all this, let's start with, uh, with if you can tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, what motivated you to join Great Place to Work after all the other great places <laughs> that you worked at, uh, what Great Place to Work stands for, and where do you see yourself leading it from here? Okay, thank you, Giovanna. Um, it's actually a funny story. Uh, I was hired about four years ago by the founder of Great Place to Work, a man named Robert Levering, who wrote a book over 20 years ago titled The 100 Best Companies to Work For in America. And that's really what started the business of, of measuring the employee experience. And he hired me a little over four years ago to sell the business. He had been running the business and was ready for a transition in his life. And so he hired me to sell it. He knew that I had a reputation of doing um, some small company turnarounds as well as selling businesses and doing it in a human-centered way, um, putting the people first. So that's what attracted me uh, to, uh, to him. And uh, to make a long story short, uh, about six months later, a business partner and I bought the business. <laughs> so I wasn't expecting it at all. Uh, I consider it to be a great stroke of luck um, where uh, I was able to really find a business uh, in a very strange way that was going to enable me to do the work that I feel like I was always meant to do, um, which is to, number one, build a great organization that was financially successful and a great place to work for everybody who worked in it and try and help other leaders who wanted to do the same thing achieve uh, the exact same thing. So so what motivated you to, to acquire that company? What was the... What, what did it is, is um, I... I knew that it, the company had something that no other company had, which was a tremendous database yes. about the thoughts and experiences and hopes and wishes of working people all around the world. Over 100 million employees were in the database. And so that enabled me to see, number one, that people are essentially the same yeah. in, in terms of what, what they expect around the world, and that most working people we're not having a really good working experience. So you could, you could clearly see that in the data and that um, certain group of, of, of employees, certain groups were having a better experience than, than others. And if you looked at the difference between an employee who was having a great experience and an employee who wasn't, it was the leader. It was the leader that they worked for um, was a major determinant in the kind of experience that the employee had. 
So um, I being just a student of business and somebody who loved business, loved the idea of using data mm -hmm. and, and analytics rather than opinions to help other leaders know just how important their role was mm -hmm. in, in affecting the experience that, that an employee has when they come to work, how you can create a great experience, or you can destroy all the motivation that a person can bring, bring to work every day based on how you lead. Mm -hmm. um, and so I knew we had this great opportunity. I also knew that from my own experience, when you created a great experience for people, um, the financial results were outstanding and they would stay outstanding. And a lot of turnaround work that I had done prior to Great Place to Work, people always thought I was a financial engineer or I was really strong at finance because I told them I was. <laughs> but my secret was how to treat the people. Mm -hmm. That was the secret. But for some reason, people find that hard to accept, that you can turn a business around, you can create growth simply by the experience that people are having. So I would usually say it was something in the financial analysis that enabled me to know exactly what to do <laughs> to turn the business around. That really wasn't it. It, it. it was the people. And so I knew the power of it and and loved the idea of using data to help other leaders uh, learn about that power and uh, achieve outstanding business results um, by treating people right at the same time. So uh, is it hard to to tell these leaders that, they might be doing something wrong and that they need to change in a certain way based on the data and the experience that you've piled up over all these years. I mean, that's a great place to work has. Yes, Yolanda, it is hard because leaders usually think they are doing a much better job than they are actually doing. So just like, uh, you know, um, looking in the mirror and seeing yourself in reality is different from walking through the world and who, what you actually look like, uh, <laughs> for example. And, um, and so, the, the, but the great thing about data is um, it is the truth. It, it's not your opinion. You can see what the people who are working for you or working with you, their experience of you. And it's not personal. Um, but there are things that we all do that makes someone feel respected or feel listened to or um, that we were being fair or honest or transparent. There are things we do to make people feel more of those things or less of those things. And that's where the data is very powerful, that you can actually see um, the experience that you're creating for others. And because we've been doing this so long and have data from companies and people all around the world, we actually know what to suggest to a leader mm -hmm. to create a different experience. So usually, just like myself, we take our survey every three or four months. Mm -hmm. I see the results. And I always see and focus on the parts that are not positive, the parts where there's something I'm doing cr to create an experience that's not great for all, mm -hmm. which is never a good feeling. Uh, because I want to be a fair person and I want to be a respected person and I want to create an enjoyable place to work where everybody can bring all of themselves to work and feel safe doing that. But sometimes I might do something, sometimes I do something that that is not the case. So I have to look at that, I have to accept it and then have a plan of action. So it's easy to go through life just being yourself. It's harder as as the leader to always be looking to change and improve and question the yes the so quality. so that's that's the hard part so I find that that about um, there are a lot of people who actually are excited about this change mm -hmm. and excited about being a better leader there's some who are curious about it sometimes they just want to know what's in it for them um, because change is risky. Yes. And then there's a group of leaders who have no intention of changing whatsoever. And it's usually easy to, to, to know which category you're talking with um, through their body language, <laughs> whether they look at the data or they will say, I don't believe the survey data. I don't believe that data. That's not the way that people feel. That data is incorrect. So they will say that 
instead of looking at the data and asking questions about it. Mm-hmm. So you can usually tell when you're working with somebody who is curious about changing, ready to change, versus just too stuck in their own ways right now in order to change. I see. So um, are are there um, any general like general problems that are most common to to the most work workplaces all around the world that yeah you know I, I would say that that one thing around the world that is that people have even in tough work situations they have a lot of pride in the work that they do this this is just something fascinating and great about people you can find people working at 136 degrees Fahrenheit and they will say it's a great place to work. You can find people in coal mines uh, working in extremely tough situations, one water break a day, and based on the person they work for, they'll say it's a great place to work. You can find a software engineer at one of the best tech companies in the world making $300,000 a year saying it's a terrible place to work. So the, the, the money, the type of work, Um, uh, can create a great environment for someone and a poor environment for another. Uh, and um, so that is kind of the human experience. You will also find that people are pretty positive, meaning a person can be in a tough work situation and you say, do you have pride in, in uh, do you like to tell people that you work where you work? And they will say yes. Would you recommend this place of work to someone else? And they will say yes. Um, even though there can be things lacking, people have this sense of kind of making the best out of a, out of a tough situation. And that pride is global. Um, you'll find some parts of the world that have more than others, um, like a Japan, mm-hmm. uh, a high sense of pride, um, even if other things are lacking um, compared to other parts of the world. Latin and South America, high sense of pride. Um, people are, are, are proud to have the job, to talk to people about the job. They care for others that they work with and, and feel generally cared for by the people uh, that, that they work um, so is, with. Is this the, the one of the more, most important factors, the co- cooperation, y- the, yes. the connections? It is. You know, the two things really define a work experience, who we work for. That's about 70%. Oh. 30%, so that's leadership. Yes, that's leadership. That, mm-hmm. that person has a, a very powerful effect on a person's work experience. Um, we all like to do work that has meaning, that we feel makes a difference. But you could be doing work where your job is to screw a cap on a bottle all day, and the leader can let you know how important that is mm-hmm. and why it matters and feel like that work has meaning. So a lot has to do with the leader and communicating with someone who's doing a job that may be trivial or it seems that way, but the leader's ability to communicate to the person how important it is to do that job and to do it well. That's the importance of, that's the importance of leadership. It can give a job that may seem not to have meaning, uh, to have great meaning. The other 30% comes from who we work with. Mm-hmm. And there are sometimes, in fact, it can be flipped. Meaning someone can say, I really don't like the person that I work for. They aren't respectful. They don't treat me fairly. But I love the people I work with. Yes. And this I've is a great this place before. to work. Yes. yes. This, this is absolutely true. So in that way, it's not just leaders. We all have a role to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all affect the culture, the environment of the people that we work with, who actually we interact a lot more Uh, than the people that we work for. So both are important. That's true, yes. So when we're scaling our teams, how do we make sure that, that uh, the, these values, the core values of the company are, are uh, transferred to all the, all, all the team members? And because there's just one uh, person that's CEO and then we have more leaders and especially when we're acquiring companies in different cultures, Is there a recipe for, for, or a process uh, that would ensure that this, these core, core company values are equally distributed to, to these parts of, and different teams? 
Yes, there are some great leaders, Mark Benioff at Salesforce, Anil Boussri at Workday, um, Julie Sweet at Accenture, um, who are all say the same thing. Always hire based on values. Always hire based on values. Then look at the technical proficiency, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. So, And to do that, when you've got five employees or when you have 55,000 employees, always hire based on values. So you need to hire someone who has a similar set of beliefs, um, which are the beliefs that are important for the company to maintain. Mm-hmm. That's why everyone isn't a fit for every organization. A person can be great at one organization and not great at another because of the values, things that the organization believes in. Every organization has a list of things that they they are willing to do and a list of things that they're not willing to do, and they have a way mm-hmm. that they feel um, people should behave and, and conduct themselves in terms of listening, speaking, thanking, rewarding, recognizing, uh, welcoming, um, hiring, developing, the basic things that happen in giving feedback. Mm-hmm. All the basic mm-hmm. things that happen in an organization, the way they're done are guided by the values. So the challenge is when you're, when you're growing fast, then sometimes people will not pay attention to the values and take a technical skill mm-hmm. because they need it and because they will say, I don't have time. Or I, there's a shortage. Of or there's a shortage. Talent. I must take this person. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, you actually don't have the time to take the wrong person. But that's not the way it feels in the moment. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's, it's a common mistake, especially at a time like now where uh, there is very low uh, unemployment around the world. For, especially for, for talented people. So our survey results are showing for the first time in 2018 and early 2019 that employees feel that a lower quality of employee is being admitted into their organization. Mm-hmm. This is a global trend mm-hmm. that, that employees that three years ago said, I think management does a really good job of hiring. They're saying in those same companies, they're not doing a good a jo- as not good a anymore. job as they used to. So. That has a lot to do with it. It's not technical proficiency people are commenting on. It's something about the people mm-hmm. and their their ability to fit and adapt into the organization. So um, hiring based on the values is always the best practice, um, but it's the one that, that um, actually limits your ability to scale um, because innovation, agility, mm-hmm. adaptability, um, uh, excellence, um, all those things come from people having a common set of beliefs about um, the customer, about how you treat each other, about integrity and how decisions get made, um, about what the priorities are um, in the organization. And as most people know who've had some experience in work, when it's time to terminate an employee, it's rarely because of their technical proficiency. So normally there's something else. And people will say, they just didn't fit here. Mm-hmm. Well, they're really commenting on the culture and the values. Um, technical proficiency, you can usually develop Achieve, yes. or give feedback or mm-hmm. someone can, can, can learn and can overcome it. When there's a values mismatch, there's no way of overcoming it. And the sooner we realize that there's... The better. Yes. So does this relate uh, somehow to your innovation by old concept? It does. Um, You know, when we talked to CEOs about three years ago, all around the world, about what was most important to them as they looked at their business and looked forward, they said it was innovation. Mm -hmm. Um, That their organizations had to get better innovation, which meant they needed to find great ideas and be able to implement them. And the way you find great ideas is you have to have many, many, many ideas. Mm-hmm. So this has been proven by, by the s- people who study innovation time and time again. To find that one idea, you need a thousand. Absolutely. The, the only way you get a thousand is from all the people producing ideas and feeling like the organization really wants to know their ideas. To know that when they produce an idea, someone's going to really think about it and consider it. 
Companies normally ask for ideas and never give the employees any feedback about those ideas, why they were accepted, tested, tried, or rejected. Mm -hmm. That feedback is very, very important because if you ask an employee for an idea, they offer the idea and then you don't try the idea or let them know why you didn't try the idea, the next time you ask, they're not going to offer an idea. Yes. So now you don't get a thousand ideas. Now you get nine hundred, then mm-hmm. eight hundred, and so on. And then you have the same five people producing all the innovation in the company, which is not good enough anymore. It's simply not good enough anymore. So um, we studied that phenomenon and came up with the concept of innovation by all. That everybody who has a smartphone, a smartphone, should be innovating on your behalf in your organization. So so that's the notion of it. And then we studied what created really innovative cultures. Um, and, and we found that it, it had a lot to do with nine things. Um, and among them are, does management inform them about decisions that are going to affect their work? That's very important to people because it makes them feel safe. So some kind of transparency? Transparency is important. Mm-hmm. information and being done in a fair way mm-hmm. that management mm-hmm. doesn't inform some people and not inform others the worst of all fairness yes the worst the worst of all definitely and and then this idea of emotional psychological and physical safety which is one of our questions we asked 60 questions mm-hmm. to find out what the employee is experiencing in terms of innovation and earnings the most important question set are those related to emotional, psychological, and physical safety. It's the best predictor of earnings Mm -hmm. and the best predictor of innovation. Because if someone feels like they don't matter as much as other people or their pay is unfair Mm -hmm. or promotions are unfair, Mm -hmm. um, then when you ask them, do you get asked for new ideas, they will say no. Not because they aren't being asked, but their perception is they don't really matter, so their answer will just be... Mm-hmm. There is no value in it. Sometimes, or almost never, I do I get asked. So um, we learned what are the things that really create um, an innovative culture, and it's the leader that, that creates that culture, mm-hmm. because the most innovative, motivated person in the world under a certain leader will leave that leader and usually leave that company because uh, a leader who is not good at at connecting with people, being transparent and being fair, uh, an employee will usually quit. Um, Eight eight out of ten employees who leave a job, they quit because of their leader, not because of the job itself or the brand of the the company. They they quit because of that leader. So um, we've studied it extensively um, and, and, and came up with this concept. The market has responded to it very well because it's what every CEO needs. Mm-hmm. They need they need a lot of ideas, and they need people who will quickly try ideas, and and which means agility. Mm-hmm. That that you're going to run fast, and then when the organization says okay stop, they will stop, turn left and run fast. They will do that. All those things come from the experience that the employee uh, the employees are experiencing. They don't come from uh, massages. They don't come from video games. They don't come from ping pong tables. They don't come from benefits. They not come even from, benefits? Not even benefits. Not that those things aren't important. They are important. Mm-hmm. But employees expect those things. Mm-hmm. They expect those things. Um, you could have a, an organization that most, I know of organizations, who most people would say their benefits are terrible compared to other companies. Mm -hmm. But the employees say it's a great place to work because of how they are treated by the leaders in that situation. We do a lot of work around the world where employees have very few benefits besides pay. And they will say in certain pockets of the organization, this is a great place to work. Mm -hmm. I'm treated with respect. And we're all treated. We all don't get paid well. And we all don't get benefits. It's fair. Yes. And they will say that's better than a place that's Maybe great for some, you know, and, and not great for others. So um, we understand this 
the the human connection is far more important than pay and benefits mm-hmm. in the long term. People will leave for more pay, um, but they're looking for meaningful work, people that they want, they enjoy working with, and more importantly, a leader who wants to develop them mm-hmm. and for them to improve, which shows they matter as a person. They want those things far more than um, than just the benefits. So in, in terms of uh, innovation, are startups a lot more agile than large uh, organizations or is this just a question of, of organization and how do these ideas travel? Startups are more agile uh, because they don't know what they're doing yet. <laughs> uh, they, they're, they're trying to find, testing they're testing everything, everything is a minimum viable product and so there's a lot of experimentation and that's expected, encouraged and creates a different kind of excitement. So um, they they are about new ideas because they are a new idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once some things or some products or services take hold, that now you have to find a way to be consistent. You have to find a way to um, to grow that. And and as you grow in terms of people, you have to have more people who are able to get work done through people. Mm-hmm. So in the early days, it could be one or two or three founders and then one person, two people, ten people, something like that. And um, and then when that organization hits about 50 people, it begins to change. Because at that point, you need other people who, who can inspire others, develop others, mm-hmm. teach others, recognize others, reward others. And you need to attract people who are good at doing that. And as you grow, that just continues. And um, you also need, um, because of usually cash flow, um, some part of the business has to be stabilized and produce the cash to fund additional innovation. Mm -hmm. So that business is no longer um, abandoning and trying new things. It's proven to be offering a product or service that's useful. Now you need a different kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. You need one that that can sustain, be stable, reliable, repeatable, and predictable. So it can provide cash for the parts of the business that are still full of high experimentation and new products and research and development and things like that. And that requires often a different kind of leader. Mm-hmm. A different kind of leader is me. So is this a breaking point for, for a lot of startups? Or it is a breaking po- point. You know, Malcolm Gladwell writes that it usually occurs around 150 people. Um, and um, though it can, it can arrive sooner than that. And that's where you can start to have almost two types of cultures. One that's still this very experimental, trying new things and does not like procedure mm-hmm. and, yes. and repeti- re- you know, repetition and consistency. And another one that does. And that's why often the founder of, of a lot of innovation does not uh, do well as the business reaches a certain size. I see. And yes. uh, it, it's a change that most cannot make. Most cannot make. It. So what should they do at that point? Um, the sooner that they know that about themselves, the better. And, uh, and then they can be really serial entrepreneurs. And they can find a way to go from an entrepreneurial startup, you know, kind of from one to another because that's what they're really good at. Mm-hmm. Um, and but that takes self awareness, um, and so most try and make the transition to be uh, a leader when a business is not in a high growth phase, but is is in one that um, where the growth needs to slow down and you need more sustainability and predictability. Um, and, uh, you know, if it's venture capital backed, that founder is going to be replaced mm-hmm. by someone who's better at um, building some structures in place that enable you to um, really know where the business is at all times, um, have more controls in place, um, be more disciplined about spending, and also better at holding people accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and managing projects and getting work done through people. So um, 
it's a transition that's very hard for for technical, especially tech founders, uh, to make. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So, uh, uh, how does the psychology of a founder changes when the venture capital comes in? Is this a ma- major? Does it impact the the company culture in a major way? You know, I think that when a founder is performing well and uh, and and has a, a compelling vision and an, there's enough evidence for a venture capitalists to feel that they that the idea is big mm-hmm. um, the bench, venture capital a, a lot of times they will say we bet on the person um, it's not a hundred percent true they're betting on the idea uh, because if you look at most venture capital backed businesses they get rid of the person yeah easily. so in fact they didn't bet on the person they bet on the idea mm-hmm. um, and maybe the a person's ability to um, develop the idea and usually it's develop the idea from one idea to a totally different idea mm-hmm. which is normally what happens but they're really betting on that kind of ability um, which is a combination of the industry the sector the time um, and whether the consumer will have you know an, an appetite so it, it's really a combination and when that 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 connection is made between venture capital and a founder when things are going well it's like heaven on earth you know because uh, the, the the founder is feeling new support mm-hmm. that they haven't mm-hmm. had not only new capital but new ideas mm-hmm. and experience. access to people and experience so this is just a great situation mm-hmm. and and the board meetings are supportive and um, the, the the founder is just feeling I thought it was going to be horrible. Everybody said it would be horrible, but it's great. And they will just have a lovely time until things start to go wrong. <laughs> okay? Which means targets are missed. Mm-hmm. Milestones that we're committed to are not being achieved. The product is not performing as advertised. Mm-hmm. Um, the marketing doesn't seem to be paying off. Um, clients, customers are using the product once, but not twice mm-hmm. or three times. Now, there, this is a, a critical moment for the venture capitalist and the founder. How are they going to navigate through that? So that moment of truth sometimes makes the founder better. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they begin to um, improve their decision making. Maybe they have to make some tough decisions related to people on their team. Um, perhaps they have to be less impulsive mm-hmm. um, around the allocation of capital. Um, but what they really need to do is listen to the venture capitalist because that's the responsibility when you took the money. If you start to battle at that point, uh, the ending probably won't be very good uh, for that founder. So this is a, a critical time where the founder needs to listen to the venture capitalist and the opposite has to be true. And there's some level of development that the founder needs to go through at that time. Um, there's something they need to have learned about how they got into that situation. And hopefully they're willing to do that with the venture capitalists and with their network so that they can get better uh, as a leader. When things go well, it's because that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. The founder feels like, really, they have nothing to learn. What does the venture capitalist know anyway? Um, and the answer is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but what weakens is something we survey, which is respect. When the respect breaks, um, then now they don't trust each other. Yes. And trust is made up of respect, credibility, and fairness. Mm-hmm. When those things start to weaken, one side starts to keep things from the from the other. Um, if it's not quickly rebuilt, it'll deteriorate, and usually uh, the founder loses. Mm-hmm. Yes, which is expected. Uh, do you think that organizations need to hire consultants or uh, or and coaches to help them with with culture transformation, especially when scaling? You know, I, I think that when scaling, uh, consultants, I would say no. When scaling, when you're in a period of high growth, and the reason I would say that is that there's some leadership behavior and ability that the organization needs. And the leaders need to develop that. 
Mm-hmm. The leaders need to develop that. So sometimes a, a consultant, unless they're bringing a technical talent that, that that's needed, but if 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 it's for culture work, mm-hmm. um, I, I think you're going to do better bringing in a coach mm-hmm. who could help the leader develop that leadership ability. So let's say that that uh, one of the things that's really important about which is always true scaling is how teams work together. That's critically important. It's it's how teams work. So if you're going to bring in, uh, do you bring in a consultant who can help teams work better, or should you bring in a coach who could help leaders of teams work better? I would bring in a coach that could help leaders of teams work better. I would try and and use the work process and its pressures to help the leader become better at leading teams. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a subtle difference. But I think an important one. You have to have leaders who learn, who are good at uh, creating a high trust environment mm-hmm. where everyone feels safe, everyone feels heard. Nobody is more powerful or smarter than another. Um, everybody is needed uh, to to achieve the impossible goal, and you need leaders. Coaches can help them do that. Um, if you bring in someone else to facilitate the meetings without helping a leader learn how to facilitate a meeting, mm-hmm. um, it's not scalable. It's not scalable. Um, you can reach a point in time later where that might be exactly what you need. But early, um, I think uh, the leadership, uh, the leader's competence should be uh, developed. So I would favor coaching mm-hmm. over um, consulting as it comes to organizational development and, and culture work. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> Uh, and then um, let's uh, talk a little bit uh, about the fear of artificial intelligence, which is a hot topic these days, um, especially because uh, AI is getting more present in our daily lives. And um, uh, But the question uh, really is, how will this affect the workplaces uh, of the future? So are, uh, what is the, the, the people's sentiments towards AI? Are they afraid that they're going to lose jobs? And do you have information about this? Yeah. We, um, because we're in the survey business, we ask this question a lot, especially over the last three years, and we'll, we'll continue to do that. Um, people who are in technology companies have very little fear of artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. and their view of the future is very positive. And they feel like it's going to be a net add in terms of the number of jobs. But if you are not in a technology company, you have great fear mm-hmm. of artificial intelligence. And most working people are not in technology companies. So there's a great fear of artificial intelligence. And, and people see it as a job eliminator. Mm-hmm. They do not understand when you say it's going to add jobs. It's going to in- create new jobs. Because normally the new job that you describe is far different mm-hmm. than the job that the person you're talking to is currently doing. Yes. So, um, you know, what could be a net addition in jobs, you know, if it's zero for me, it's zero for me. Mm-hmm. And that's not, not a good thing. So I, I think that that's the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, what will actually happen, who knows? Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't trust anyone's prediction yeah. um, in the future because humans are actually not very good at that. Um, <laughs> so maybe machines will be better there. Um, we should ask a robot. But, but um, what we recommend to leaders is do not talk people into how great the world's going to be for them mm-hmm. when artificial intelligence uh, is, is, you know, that dream is fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Because you don't know, and people know you don't mm-hmm. know. So they become highly suspicious when you're talking into how something's going to be so much better for them. Um, because every other change involving technology has eliminated a lot of jobs mm-hmm. you know, throughout history. So the expectation is should be this one will too. Um, instead, um, what people want to know is from a leader, for credibility, if you say, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Um, but we are pursuing it because we feel like it's going to improve the quality of our decision making or our ability to serve customers Mm -hmm. and so on. And layoffs here will be a last resort. 
mm-hmm. it will be a last resort. Because you're saying two things. One, you're saying it's possible, which gets you credibility. Mm-hmm. And number two, you're saying it's a last resort. Okay, well, what does that mean? It means we're going to do training. We're going to do reskilling. We're going to support people to go back to school and get education. Now you're building credibility and trust. Mm-hmm. With a lot of uncertainty in the future, the leader is establishing credibility. And the ultimate show of respect is to talk to an adult like they're an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, because people can handle it. Companies think they can't. People have sick parents, sick siblings. Yes. Um, they have all kinds of things going on in their life. They can handle this information. And you do it with all employees. Mm-hmm. A mistake companies make, sometimes they talk to senior leaders one way about the future and frontline workers a different way about the future. Um, so at, at workplaces, there are no babies. No one needs baby talk. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs adult conversation. So these are the things, the best way to talk about artificial intelligence is to, to, to do it in that transparent way. Don't talk people into how great it's going to be. And frequently communicate about it. Mm-hmm. You don't want to bring it up once and bring it up a year later. You want to, employees want to be informed consistently about things that might affect them. Absolutely. And so this is a, an opportunity. So every 90 days, mm-hmm. leaders should be talking about artificial intelligence, how it's affecting uh, the work, you know, and the plans uh, for going forward and how it might affect people. And communicating it in a way that that the the employee says, hmm, they are thinking about me. They are thinking about me because that's what they're listening for. Um, And that's what they need to keep the trust in place that they have built up and that they're really giving to the people that they work for. Yes. Uh, So speaking of AI, do you what's the impact of it uh and software in general on your business and data i mean this data science artificial intelligence must have a huge impact in analyzing the answers and yeah yovana it's affecting our business a lot uh because now um knowing about the employee experience Mm -hmm. um is not enough people now expect that they can see data that will enable them to predict things. Mm -hmm. They want to be able to predict things. Knowing what's happening now is not interesting anymore. There was a time it was very interesting. You could survey employees once a year and everyone was satisfied. No one's satisfied with that anymore. People now, yes, they want to know what's going on now, but the only reason they want to know is to be able to predict things. Mm -hmm. And that's where artificial intelligence comes in. What happens in the, the, the experience of an employee that will enable you to know they're likely to leave in three to six months? That's what everyone wants to know. Mm-hmm. What happens in an employee experience that enables you to predict that person's about to update their LinkedIn profile? Oh, I see. Okay. Uh-huh. What's happening in an employee experience that predicts they're going to say something very impolite to a customer on the phone call, on a phone mm-hmm. call. So the employee experience data is now being expected to predict what the employee might do in terms of retention and how employees are going to interact with customers. It's totally different than three or four years ago when this was not a thing. That's crazy. This so was not a thing. This is now the thing. Wow. This is now the thing. It's it's to use databases like ours. That's why ours is very powerful. Because for machine learning and artificial intelligence, you need a lot of data. Mm-hmm. We have it, mm-hmm. and so it, it's it's in our ability now to um, mine that data to be able to make these predictions about employees and how it might impact customers wow. uh, going forward. So minute, even the yes. Yeah. So I, I know that you're building this product called Amprising. Yes. Uh, can you tell us more about it? Yeah. So I just referred to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the um, we uh, prior to, to um, when I first got to Great Place to Work, we had a survey that you could do once a year, 
and people, our customers would take the survey and we give them the results three months later (laughs) in PowerPoint and Excel spreadsheets. And they would analyze them and then it was six months later after employees took the survey. So you'd be talking about a point in the past even though things had changed. Mm -hmm. I'm embarrassed to state that was the business that I bought with a partner. (laughs) Um, And quickly realizing that that business was going to go out of business. Um, we we knew that we needed a another um, um, solution, mm-hmm. and so luckily enough, um, we knew uh, a great firm, H Tech, uh, 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 based in Serbia, uh, full of some of the most talented engineers in the world, and who loved to do remarkable things. And when we told them what we were trying to build, we were afraid of the challenge. They were so excited and said, this is going to be so much fun and very easy to do, and we want to do it. And that enthusiasm and entrepreneurism and, and commitment um, is the reason we have the, except, the exceptional product that we have today called Emprising mm-hmm. um, that is now being used by almost 2,000 companies in the U.S. Uh, less than two years after being um, uh, both being brought to the market the top analytics firms in the world are using Emprising. Um, so uh, it's an incredible achievement, both by our people in the U.S., but really particularly the team at HTEC um, that have done the unthinkable. We now have a product that did not exist two years ago that is being revered and re- reviewed as the state-of-the-art product in capturing the human experience and uh, providing a platform and an experience for leaders to know what they need to do to create a great place to work for all and a great launching pad for machine learning and artificial intelligence to enable the prediction mm-hmm. about employees as well as how that's going to impact customers. So without Emprising, um, you wouldn't be here today because I would be out of business. <laughs> and uh, it would be a, a, a podcast about how do you take a business and make sure it goes out of business <laughs> where I would be an expert on, on how to do that. But but thanks to a lot of great people um, and a phenomenal team at HTEC, um, we're a market leader well, um, you know, in this regard in less than two years. Uh, so um, uh, it's been great. And we now have it in the U.S. Uh, it's tested and tried and, and endorsed and embraced by our customers. So now we're moving it around the world. Mm-hmm. That's our next challenge. We're, we're moving it, uh, the platform that's currently just in the U.S. Um, we just started in Canada. We're going to Germany and then moving throughout Europe and then Latin and South America. I'm sure you'll have a lot of success, Derek. I hope so. Um, so uh, how often uh, when we have this product or we just want to test uh, the sentiment uh, in our company towards the company, how often do you suggest we, we uh, talk to our employees or do the surveys? And, uh, and also, when we get the results, how do we effectively go about changing the culture if needed? Yeah. So I think uh, you want to survey employees twice a year, at least twice a year. Um, we have customers, um, we have a customer work day that surveys employees every Friday. Well, they ask their employees two questions every Friday, and over 90% of the employees respond. It's incredible. So um, that's probably the, the, the best, most extreme answer um, and clear commitment um, of a listening culture. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, uh, but, but I think twice a year. I think uh, that what twice a year does is it enables you to take a snapshot and then do some things mm-hmm. and then measure again whether they're having an effect. You can't wait a year anymore. Yeah. You can't wait a year anymore. And so it, it enables you to uh, to, to uh, learn what's happening and then make some changes and then measure again. And then after you do that, you know, twice in a year, what you're going to find is there's a particular area where you need to go deeper. Mm-hmm. So instead of asking 60 questions twice a year, um, you could just ask five questions. 
about a particular area. There, there, there can be something in innovation. Mm-hmm. So you could ask nine questions about that. Something in what's going on with leadership effectiveness. Nine questions about that. Mm-hmm. Um, something around the values and whether they're being experienced by employees. Or the food in the cafeteria. Or people's commute time. Um, benefits. So there are things that show up in the larger survey. You can go down deeper and that's becoming a trend. Pulse surveys. Short surveys about a very concentrated area of work that you want to learn more about. And and so when you get the results, what do you do? Well, uh, that's the business that we're in. And so we have a database that lets you know that if um, uh, people are having a at some part in the business, some area in the world, some area in the manufacturing plant, um, they are saying things are not fair. 80% of the people are saying things are not fair. Mm-hmm. Well, something's going on with the leadership. Something's going on with the leadership. Well, what's going on with the leadership? Well, based on the questions we ask, we know what it is. Because we've asked questions um, in a very social social science rigorous uh-huh. way to know if it's um, communication the way the person speaks or does it uh, or listening or recognition and rewards there are some leaders who recognize people every day and say great things but it's the same people every day people want to have the opportunity to be recognized too it could be that simple thing and the leader will say oh I recognize People every day. Yeah, the same people. You want to... <laughs> yes. you know, that's not good. It's better if you don't recognize anyone uh-huh. than that. Because people feel it's not fair. Mm-hmm. And then they will say pay's not fair either, even though they have no data. But their feeling is, well, if you're recognizing them, they're probably making more money than me. And they have no... And facts. they're probably right. They might be right. They're probably right. In that case, I, I, I bet you're right. They are right. So, so this is what, what is... Um, you know, what is... Uh, most important. Um, so it's when we see the data at Great Place to Work, the prescription for improvement for the leader is very straightforward. Uh-huh. The data tells you very clearly what to do. Mm-hmm. It's, there's no guesswork. And then you ha- help the leader, usually through a coach or an HR assistant, um, practice these new behaviors. Mm-hmm. And then you survey again. That's what I love about our work. When we say something should be done and a company does it, they can measure and see if we're right or not. They can immediately test the strength of our database and whether we understand people and their experience at work by doing what we suggest and then uh, measure it again. So there is always the same set of questions. We 60 ask, questions? We ask, we ask 60 questions. And then if there's a particular area that has... Um, surfaced as a problem we have question sets for those two Mm -hmm. just a very specific area of interest and these questions are the result of 30 years of they're the result of 30 years of experience and oh that's okay so finally Uh um, uh, it's great that you're sharing all this knowledge with the companies around the world so that we all can try and become the best version uh, of of our company for, for all the people Uh, but how do you, <laughs> as as a leader, uh, practice what you preach at Great Place to Work? And uh, did, your t- did your team transform in the last few years, and, and how? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I feel very lucky that you asked me that question, uh, <laughs> because uh, I have a good answer, and I'd be very embarrassed if I didn't. Um, but when I joined Great Place to Work, um, about... Three people out of ten people at Great Place to Work said it was a great place to work when I joined mm-hmm. about four years ago. And um, we just did our last survey um, about 45 days ago. 9.2 people out of ten people said it was a great place to work. Wow. Um, and uh, so because we do the survey, um, and by the way, our results are online. Uh, people can look and see them. Um, because I feel it's important for people to see whether we're a great place to work because wherever I go, they go, it's a great place to work or a great place to work. <laughs> yes. So just for that joke, 
um, we, we publicize them so people can see them. So um, I, like every other leader, our customers, I, I do it more frequently, probably, every three to four months. And, um, and then we will see an area and we'll go deeper. Mm-hmm. So two surveys ago, um, we had people who felt like they weren't getting um, developmental opportunities and feedback on how to develop. Um, as leaders, we have a lot of first time leaders. So we asked another set of questions to understand more what they meant. We got the answer. We've rolled out a new first time leadership program. And we'll survey again and we'll see whether we've made things better or not. Um, we we um, had s- some parts of the organization that felt that. Um, they really didn't understand how decisions were made at the top of, the, of our organization. Um, they didn't have clarity. So now um, our, our executive team, which meets every other Monday, um, we, we have a, a group that sits in on that meeting. We write and record uh, that, that meeting, summarize that meeting, Two days after that meeting, every employee gets that. Share with everyone. So they all can see what we're talking about, how decisions are getting made, and, and reinforce that. So the only way an employee won't know where this company is heading and how it's making decisions is if they don't read. <laughs> um, but other, otherwise, yeah. they're going to know. Well, those, th- those things came from the survey, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. from what our employees are saying. And as long as you're surveying, you're always going to learn something you could do better. Mm-hmm. And we just had... Four employees start today. Um, so they've never been in the survey. So um, they'll have their first survey with us probably in about three months. And it'll be their first time to say what it's like to be new and and, 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 and what it's like. So as a leader, um, you're, you're, you're not working to get to some level. You're always, there's always work mm-hmm. to do. Um, and uh, and and the the best work is work that when employees give you results, we also I think we're probably the only company in the world that when our survey results become available, which is as soon as the survey closes, meaning you normally we have a survey and people have three weeks to fill it out, mm-hmm. and then at Friday at five p.m. Yes, everyone submits. Right, and that, yes. You send reminders. Yeah, we do. And then they all, we get them all. At 5.01 p.m., the results are available. Mm-hmm. Everyone gets them. Not management, not me, everyone. So everyone can see everything. So um, my employees see the results before I do. Because I'm usually on an airplane. Uh-huh. Uh, so they see them first. And... Um, because as I say to them you're responsible too at creating a great place to work Mm -hmm. so look and see what we can do um, and what you can do to make sure this is a great place to work for all it's all of our responsibility Um, but we all get that and then everybody has to now think about their role in creating a great place to work and what they can do different and so my role as the leader is to always be changing and to let um, people here know what I'm working on and what I'm trying to change and how I'm trying to get better um, as, as a leader. And so I, I'm working on uh, my connections when people join the company to make sure that they have a connection with me when they join the company. Mm-hmm. Because the survey data said they wished they had a connection with me like other people seem to have. So now I'm working to make sure they have that connection. That makes sense, so, yeah. Um, so how many people work for? for we pay? have uh, now about uh, 95 in the U.S. and 1,000 outside of the U.S. Whoa. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Again, thank you, Michael, for sharing with us all your priceless insights 
we definitely appreciate the opportunity to work with you and your leadership team to create this amazing product that should radically improve global workplaces. And we are definitely looking forward to what this uh, partnership will further bring. Um, we also support your vision and your courage to transform the way this company works and using the technology that we've built together. Uh, lastly, Mike, uh, thank you very much for this interview. And I'll feel free to reach out again and get more insights from you on other subjects that make that we uh, may cover in the future and in particular re regarding culture, uh, business, uh, digitalization and also uh, scaling uh, organizations. Thank you.